Welcome back to True Crime San Antonio. I am just another San Antonio native, and thank you for tuning in. If you're new to the show, we cover crime from San Antonio, Texas exclusively. I apologize for the two-week break, but I've started other ventures that will take my time from working on this show. I do this all by myself, so until that changes, I'm going to need some time to put together a decent, hopefully well-researched show for you all. I appreciate all of you who stuck with me since the beginning and hope to continue to do what I can to bring you stories of value. I think today's story falls in line with what I hope to do from the beginning. Telling stories that haven't been told or forgotten. Emma Straight 8 Oliver was one of the deadliest women ever to live in San Antonio, and she didn't use poison either. If you ever crossed Emma or her blade, chances are you were going to end up on the wrong side of that straight 8. Question is, was she the deadliest woman ever to live in San Antonio? It's at least arguable. But first, San Antonio, true crimes this week. Just before 7 a.m., last Thursday, March the 10th, San Antonio police were called to the Eckerd Heights Apartments on the 4800 block of Gus Eckert Road for reports of shots fired. When they arrived, they found a 23-year-old man lying dead next to his car. He was shot. The shooter apparently fled the scene and hasn't been located. He was wearing a dark blue hoodie. He would later be identified as 23-year-old Michael Ekinez, a 2020 graduate of Christodom College. After graduating, Michael took a teaching assistant position at Great Hearts Teaching Academy in San Antonio. He was said to be a sweet and devoted friend who found a love for teaching, particularly in his political science and economical classes. A spokeswoman for the Great Hearts Teaching Academy said we are shocked and deeply saddened to have lost a beloved member of our school community. He was a skilled teacher and a generous soul who poured his time, talent, and energy into our community. It's been about a week since this incident happened, and there hasn't been any updates since. The person in a blue hoodie took off, and unless there's surveillance tape, I'm not sure what else they're going to be able to find right now. But I hope they do find him. From an article online, his parents live in Virginia, which is where he's from as well. It's tragic this kid came down here to pursue his career and his life had to end this way. And lastly, a few days ago, on Monday, March the 14th, a very chaotic scene almost turned into a riot when a man was shot by what family members say was nine times in the back. That Monday afternoon, three SAPD officers were patrolling the area near North Hamilton and West Laurel near Woodlawn Lake Park on the west side of San Antonio when they came across Kevin Johnson, 28 years old. Records show that Johnson was wanted for a felon in possession of a firearm charge. Police allege that Johnson ran away from officers and pulled a gun from his waistband. Then he was shot by Officer Adam Rule, Officer Gus Vias, and Officer James Quintanilla. Officer Rule had been on the force for six years. Vias had been on the force for four years 
and Kintania was on the force for 13 years. All three were placed on administrative duty following the active investigation. Chief Willie McManus was on the scene that day, and he said, at what point the officer shot, I don't know because I haven't seen the body cam. According to SAPD policy, they have 60 days to release the body cam footage and their findings. Johnson's family was on the scene that Monday, and witnesses told them that they saw he was shot nine times in the back. But after the shooting, the scene was tense. People were seen rocking a San Antonio Police Department vehicle, and a whole bunch of people were pepper sprayed, including the mother of the victim, who family members said is suffering from breast cancer. She was on the floor unable to breathe while family members attempted to get an EMS to help her. The scene eventually calmed down, and the mother could be seen hugging her daughter, crying, saying they shot my son from behind and that's wrong. They shot him nine times and nobody here has anything to say to me as she turned and yelled at the police officers forming a line. Kevin Johnson's family held a vigil for him the next day. Now according to SAPD, Kevin Johnson was pulling a gun and so the officers had to shoot him. I won't speculate, but we really won't know until that comes out. Alright, I think we're good. Here we go. Episode 23. Warning. This story depicts accounts of violence and adult themes that may be found disturbing and unsuitable for some. Listener discretion is advised. When you look up the most infamous murderesses of all time, You'll find names like Countess Elizabeth Bathory, Susanna Ola, and San Antonio's own Janine Jones. Janine Jones was a nurse who was suspected of killing up to 60 infants and young children. She was convicted of two murders and will die in prison. If you haven't heard her story, Killer Queens does an episode on her. It's pretty good. Many thought she deserved the death penalty, including a number of those families who lost their child because of her need to play hero. While she will probably go down as the most infamous woman in San Antonio's history, I bet you haven't heard of one of the most deadliest. Emma Straight 8 Oliver was only the third woman in Texas's history to be given the death sentence. The only woman legally executed in Texas at that time in 1949 was Chupita Rodriguez, hanged for murder November 13, 1863, in San Patricio County. Chupita was found guilty of murdering a horse trader named John Savage for $600 in gold he carried in his saddlebags. 
even though they found his gold before the trial even started, it didn't matter. The sheriff who arrested her served as jury foreman. He selected the other men who served on the jury, including four who served in the grand jury who indicted Chupita. They held a fast trial and executed the 90-year-old woman by hanging. The story's fascinating, but it isn't a San Antonio story, so look it up if you get the chance. It's worth it. This story, however, is about the woman whose nickname I can only guess refers to a straight-edge 8-inch blade. She probably had more headlines in the San Antonio Register than anyone else in the 1930s and 1940s. This is how the San Antonio Register described her. The criminal history of Emma Straight 8 Oliver is that of a woman with an ever-ready blade, wielded to kill. Her petty law violations were many, her major one, namely Serial. A woman who could have been quite attractive, she habitually wears inasculine clothing, with her hair cut short. She had a long criminal history, including vagrancy, prostitution, four arrests for murder, and seven for aggravated assault, totaling 33 known arrests. Finding these stories that go back 90 years wasn't easy, but I found a lot of them. Their earliest account was dated April the 29th, 1932. Emma Oliver was charged in corporation court for theft under $50. She was alleged to have stolen clothing from Ellen Brady, who formerly shared the same apartment on Dawson Street. A year later, on June the 16th, 1933, Emma was on the losing end of a blade brawl, probably for the first time in her life, but definitely not the last. The Sunday brawl with an unknown assailant led to the stabbing of Emma, and according to police records, Emma was stabbed once in the back with a pocket knife by a man whom she refused to name to the detectives, as well the place of occurrence. She was taken to the city hospital by a private ambulance. Eleven months later, on May the 18th, 1934, Emma would be dubbed Straight Eight and given her first front-page headline. It read, Woman Murders Roommate. Subheadline, Saturday Night Fight Ends Fatally for Chum of Woman Returning at Late Hour. It was actually on May the 12th, 1934, that Rosie Nyos, a.k.a. Rosie Brown, was stabbed to death with a knife by the hands of her roommate as a result of a fight engaged at their rooming place on East Crockett Street near midnight. They both had been known to police on occasion to become embroiled in fights. When the police arrived on the scene after being summoned by Undertaker F.E. Lewis, he told them the woman had been dead for some time. Emma was taken into custody when she arrived home later, admitting to having an altercation with the dead woman when she came to the door at a late hour, and according to her statement, after the brawl, she went out to eat and visited two restaurants partaking in tacos and pork chops. A man known as Topsy was apparently also arrested according to the article, and placed in jail as a material witness after it was discovered that the red blotches on his shirt was blood. Four months later, on September the 22nd, 1934, Emma was found guilty of murder and given a five-year suspended sentence. In criminal law, a suspended sentence is an alternative to imprisonment where a judge may partially or entirely suspend the convicted individual's prison 
or jail sentence so long as they fulfill certain conditions. I don't know what conditions these were, but Emma must have complied and put down her straight eight because she served not a day for killing Rosie Brown. Emma managed to stay out of trouble too, or at least out of the papers for almost eight years. Then, on August the 21st, 1942, in yet another row, Emma, who at this point I had no idea how old she actually was, finally was given an age, 39. She lived on Ellis Alley at this point and was slashed about the face, arms, and legs by 38-year-old Lydia Wyatt. The Wyatt woman was arrested and booked for aggravated assault and jailed in the cutting case. She also faced another accuser with her being booked for stealing $100 from a soldier, Benny W. Servers, Company A, Second Engineers, who said that the money was stolen from him a week earlier in the 200 block of Chestnut Street. Two years later, on September the 27th, 1944, Emma would find herself in yet another knife fight. This time her foe was Johnny Mayusery, a woman who just a month earlier had slashed and stabbed a man at the same residence on Gallagher Street. That man survived. Emma and Miss Johnny resorted to their blades to settle an argument. Both women suffered knife wounds. Another two years would go by without incident or a headline mentioning Emma until October the 11th, 1946, when the San Antonio Register published Man Cut to Death in Row with Two Women. It marked the 12th homicide of the year in what was going to be an all-time high for murder in a 12-month period. On October the 6th, Emma, after a night of drinking, returned to her residence very drunk about daylight Sunday morning to get money for more whiskey. She said that she had given a Mrs. Annie Sanders $15 to keep for her. When she arrived, she found Jerry, brother-in-law Ebony, arising from Mrs. Sanders' bed. Mrs. Sanders told neighbors and police that she had hidden $15 under a rug and claimed that Jerry had taken the money and torn the rug getting it. Jerry, on the other hand, claimed that he had been robbed, that money had actually been stolen from him, and threatened to call the law. Emma, in her statement, said that when Jerry tried to leave to contact police, she blocked the door, and that, quote, one word brought on another, and I was drunk from drinking all night, and I took out my pocket knife and cut Jerry Eberney. She said that she got the $15 from Mrs. Sanders, who claimed that she had recovered it from Jerry. After she got the money, Emma said that she got another half pint of whiskey and refused to wash Jerry's blood from her hands, despite Mrs. Sanders begging her to do so before she went for the whiskey. When police arrived, summoned by neighbors, Emma was drinking from the bottle. She calmly handed over the murder weapon and continued to drink her whiskey. Two neighbors in sworn statements both said that they heard Mrs. Sanders say, don't let that bleep out of this house, he's going to call the law. It was then that Emma first stabbed Jerry in the chest. Both women, witnesses said, had knives in their hands. Mrs. Sanders again was heard saying, let the bleep die, and then again, die you bleep, die. Another neighbor who lived a few houses away on Zip Alley, 58-year-old Henry Mitchell, said he went to the scene of the disturbance on the plea of others in the house who told him that the women were killing brother-in-law. 
He said he found Mrs. Sanders with a small knife in her hand and Jerry and Emma struggling in the kitchen. Henry grabbed Emma by the wrist while another man led Jerry into the front room of the house where he collapsed. Jerry, brother-in-law Ebrony, at the age of 47, was slashed to death over $15, an equivalent of about $242 today. He was literally butchered about the chest, abdomen, and body, and died in the Collins ambulance en route to the hospital. No type of weapon was found on him either. Emma, then 39, and Mrs. Annie Sanders, 47, were arrested for the murder. Emma gave a signed statement admitting her part in the knifing, but Mrs. Sanders refused to talk. Both were released from custody a few days later on a $2,500 bond. That would be equivalent to $40,000 today. The case was tried in February 1947, and in a typical case of justice as administered in San Antonio at the time, the prosecution and defense entered an agreement whereby Emma, straight eight Oliver, pleaded guilty of murder without malice, waived trial by jury, and accepted a sentence of three years in the penitentiary. Three years for murder. Pronouncing sentence, Judge W.W. McCrory patronizingly told her to be a good girl or she might have to serve the full three years. She was in prison for about 18 months. A week after being released from prison, in October 1948, she was in jail again for twice plunging an ice pick, once in the shoulder, once in the back, into 33-year-old Joseph Hamilton. Emma was drunk, and according to Joseph at the time, for no good reason at all, she started an argument and stabbed him. The next month, in an altercation in the 2300 block of East Commerce Street, she stabbed Ernest Spencer five times. He was seriously, but not critically wounded. Ernest Spencer was no stranger to dealing with knife fights either, or getting stabbed with ice picks. Earlier that year in April, Ernest was stabbed by another woman with an ice pick. No one is just that unlucky. For the next several months, Emma's brushes with the laws were of a minor nature. But in July 1949, she assaulted two policemen in an incident at the Southern Pacific Tracks and North Center Street. Officer Dave Alsbury had been taking Officer H.L. Frugia to a pharmacy to obtain medication for an abscessed tooth. They stopped to investigate the actions of three men they noticed walking along the tracks. The men disappeared, but the officers saw a figure in men's clothing that they took to be a man. When they told the individual, who was Emma, to come over to the car, she replied, Come and get me, you son of a bitch. In the ensuing developments, she fought both officers ferociously. Finally thrown into the car, she kicked Frugia in the mouth, grabbed Owsbury, who was driving the car, around the neck and snatched his blackjack. She was eventually subdued, with 15 stitches being required to close wounds in her head. She was released under a $500 bond. Her trial was set for September the 29th, 1949, but she failed to appear. The bond was forfeited and she was apprehended a week later. She was sentenced to 60 days for the attack on Osbury, 30 days for the assault on Frugia, with both sentences running consecutively. 
in what would be her last headline for a murder only six months later, it read, Woman Killer Slays Another Man. The murderous blade of Emma, straight eight Oliver, now 42, flashed again, and for the second time in three years, San Antonio's notorious police-battling woman criminal killed a man. She had only been released weeks before, and yet she was in jail again for murder. A 35-year-old Conroy truck driver, Herman Cohn, was the woman's latest victim. She plunged her razor-sharp, long-bladed knife into the man's heart in a 2300-block East Commerce Street house on Friday night, February the 24th, 1950, and left him to die where he fell. Two trips were made by officers to the multi-room house on East Commerce Street before the man's body was found. Saturday morning, the 25th, shortly before 1 o'clock, officers acting on a tip that a man had been murdered searched part of the 20-odd room house but were unable to find the body they had been told was there. The officers looked through the upstairs apartments and upon coming downstairs, they met Emma. They went into one of the downstairs apartments but did not enter another where a light was seen because she told them that the light they saw was in the same room they had previously entered. Emma and another person, Millard O'Connor, questioned at the time, said they knew nothing of the killing. The officers returned to headquarters without finding the corpse, but returned shortly in response to a second call. Officers said that Millard O'Connor escorted them to Emma's room where the light had been seen on the south side of the house. On the floor, a man lay dead. He had been stabbed through the heart. Miller told officers that he, Emma, another man, and three other girls had been at the East Commerce Street house from 10 o'clock Friday morning until 4 in the afternoon. At 4, he went to work and at midnight returned to the Commerce Street address. He said that he noticed a truck parked with its lights burning. The truck belonged to Herman Cohn. He notified police, who after questioning him concerning the owner of the truck, left. Millard said at the time he knew nothing of the dead man in the house. After officers left, Emma excused herself with her telling Millard to go on it, that she would join him. He said that he told her he would wait for her before going to the room. After some 25 minutes elapsed, Millard told police that he opened the door and saw the man lying on the blood-soaked floor. Miller then again summoned police to the house. Emma admitted killing the man, police said, and they removed a bone-handled, two-bladed knife from her pocket. But the story she told differs sharply from one given by another woman, an eyewitness to the murder, who was bulldozed by Emma and was very afraid of her. Emma, according to the police, said that Herman had accompanied her to the Commerce Street house Friday afternoon. There, the couple and others drank wine. Emma said that she left, but returned between 9 and 10 o'clock that night. Herman, she said, asked her to bring him a blonde girl, whom he had seen with Emma the night before. Emma contended that she got angry and ordered him out, and his allegedly replying, Don't get mad, I'll pay you if you'll get her here. She said she asked him what did he think she was. When Herman offered to pay her, she said that she turned around and told him, yeah, I'm going to go get her, and here she is now. With that, she plunged her knife into his heart. The murder occurred about 10 o'clock that Friday night. 
Emma then said she returned to work at a tavern on East Commerce and Government Street. When she got off, she said she had coffee and met her boyfriend. She was then taken into custody and booked for murder. Mary J. Williams, the only eyewitness to the murder, said in a signed statement that she was standing at East Commerce and Government Street Friday evening about 7 o'clock when Mrs. Oliver, who was in front of the East Commerce Street house, called her. Mary said that when she asked the other woman what she wanted, the latter replied, Come and see, you bitch. Because she feared her, Mary said that she went to Emma. At the same time, she noticed a man, who was Herman Cohn, parking his truck in front of the house. Emma told Mary to, quote, keep him company, while she made a telephone call. Herman and Mary went into Emma's room, where the man told her that he had brought some lumber to San Antonio and would be headed for Conroy, Texas, and that Emma had gone to call a lady friend for him. Emma returned and told Herman that the cab would be there in a minute and to give her the money. When Herman replied that he would give it to her when the cab arrived, she demanded that he give it to her immediately. Mary said that when Herman answered that he would give it to her in a minute, Emma walked out of the room, walked back up to Herman, cursed him, and told him to give her the $3 or she would beat him. She drew a knife from her hip pocket, grabbed Herman by the front of his shirt, pulled him toward her and told him, you don't know who you're fooling with. I don't allow nobody to fool with me. Herman protested that he didn't have $3, showed Emma his empty billfold, but took a dollar from his watch pocket. Emma said, give me two more dollars, and Herman said he didn't have two more dollars. She snatched a dollar out of his hand, and as Herman started toward the door, Emma grabbed him with her left hand, turned him around, and plunged the knife into his chest. Mary would later say that she heard something running like water from a hydrant and looked and saw blood running from his chest down to his britches. He grabbed his stomach, and he didn't say anything, but then he walked over to the dresser, sat on a box next to it, and laid his head on the dresser and said, Oh Lord, oh Lord. Then Emma looked at him for a minute, and she raised his head off the dresser and said, Don't die on my dresser, motherfucker. For a moment, Herman sat straight, opted to comply with his would-be killer, then fell to the floor. Emma started out the door and Mary followed her. That's when Emma pushed Mary back and said, you had better stay in there or I'm going to kill you. You know that bitch done died. So Mary went back in. Emma left and came back shortly and said to Mary, let's go. They left and went to the Harlan Inn for about an hour where Emma bought the two of them a bottle of beer. She told Mary, you had better not say anything about it or I will kill you. So Mary complied. Later on that night, Emma told her the plan to get rid of Herman's body. She told Mary, I know that you can drive and I'm going to put his body in the truck and take him down the road. That would be about the time that Millard came home and found the truck outside where he phoned the police and then phoned them again when he found the body. After the discovery of the body, Officer Fess went to a place across the street and found Emma standing there. She told him, here I am, bitch, I killed him. Officer Fess took from her a knife which was identified and offered in evidence as it was a knife that was described by witnesses. A Collins Ambulance, 
carried Herman Cohn's dead body to the Robert B. Green Hospital morgue. He left behind a wife and two children, the older of whom was 11 at the time. On February the 28th, 1950, a charge of murder was filed against Emma Oliver in the Court of Justice of the Peace for the fatal knifing of Herman Cohn. Emma remained in jail, and two weeks later, facts of the casework presented to the grand jury were in session. M.C. Gonzalez, criminal prosecutor of the district attorney's office, told the San Antonio Register that an indictment against a notorious woman criminal was expected to be returned in a week. Criminal prosecutor Gonzalez also declared that the case would be most vigorously prosecuted and that the death penalty would be asked. Sure enough, a week later on March the 15th, 1950, Emma was indicted by the grand jury. She was visited during the week in her cell by M.C. Gonzalez, and he asked her, Do you realize that you have murdered three men? To this, she coldly replied, Nah, not three men. I've killed two men and one woman. Gonzalez told her that he was going to ask the death penalty for the Herman Cohn murder, to which she displayed no emotion at her possibly going to the electric chair. Emma made no arrangements for counsel that would come to trial in less than a month on April the 3rd, 1950. District Attorney William Henley and Assistant District Attorney M.C. Gonzalez prosecuted the case, while Sam L. Harrison and Theo Pat Henley were the court-appointed defense attorneys. All of that Monday, April the 3rd, was devoted to selecting the jury, which was taken from a special veneer of 200, with the defense asking prospective jurors if they understood Negro behavior patterns. I don't understand this argument by the defense, and granted this was 70 years ago, and racism was arguably at the forefront of its peak. And today, you can say it just wears a different mask. Either way, there was an objection to the inference that the Negro behavior pattern was any different from that of any other American or that they were expected to flaunt and kill. The state's principal witnesses were 23-year-old Mary J. Williams, who lived less than a mile from Emma, the only eyewitness to the murder, and 38-year-old Miller O'Connor. Mary was subjected to a withering cross-examination by the defense, but her testimony was unshaken and she refused to be confused. Throughout the trial, Emma chewed gum and seemed unconcerned. Mary testified almost exactly to her signed statement and remained adamant of her accounts. Miller O'Connor testified to his discovering of body after police had already made one visit to the house. Emma Oliver did not take the stand, and there were no defense witnesses. The largest crowd ever to attend a criminal court trial packed the courtroom and overflowed into the corridors. At times, its actions were unpredictable and irregular. During the Tuesday recess, it broke into song and prayer. Court bailiff S.L. Matheny and a person identified as Reverend Williams led in prayer. Judge W.W. W. McRory returned to his chambers in time to miss the chorus of a spiritual. The jury deliberated for five hours and 35 minutes and taking three ballots in criminal district court. 
They got the case at 3.40 Tuesday afternoon and returned it Tuesday night at 9.15. They came back that night and returned with them a verdict guilty of murder and a sentence of death in the electric chair for Emma Straight 8 Oliver. On the first ballot, the vote was five for death, one for life, six for a penitentiary term. Eventually, they would all come together and sentence Emma to death. Shortly after the death sentence was announced, Emma Oliver professed a desire to get religion and declared that she had always lived a Christian life. It was also reported that she showed no reaction when she heard the death sentence. After the death penalty sentence was learned, the pastor of one of the city's largest churches visited Judge McRory, seeking to intercede on Emma's behalf. The next day, defense counsel, appointed by the court, filed a motion for a new trial, charging that the verdict was not supported by facts and evidence, that there was audience participation, and that the jurors were familiar with Emma Oliver's sordid criminal record. Emma was the second woman ever to be sentenced to death in Bear County. A woman, Miss Clara Err, was given death in 1931 for the murder of her husband. She was granted a new trial where she pleaded guilty and was given a life sentence instead. Ten days later, 2,000 people jammed into New Light Baptist Church and hundreds more watched on as Emma Oliver was baptized Easter Sunday by Reverend Dr. P.S. Wilkinson. The 42-year-old Emma was carried to the New Light for the baptismal ceremony by Owen Kilday, Sheriff of Bear County, Chief Deputy George Huntress, and Mrs. Agnes Frazier, jail matron. The party, after experiencing some difficulty getting through the crowd, arrived at the church before one o'clock. In his prayer, Dr. Wilkinson asked that the doomed woman might be spared for the electric chair. The New Light 200-voice choir sang during the ceremony, following which Emma was returned to the county jail. The application for a new trial was denied on April the 29, 1950 by Judge W. W. McRory in Criminal District Court. Judge McRory ruled that the notorious woman criminal had been given a fair trial and that the verdict had been supported by the evidence. Attorneys for the defense, Sam Harrison and Theo Pat Hemley, argued during the two-hour hearing before a packed courtroom that no member of the grand jury that indicted the murderess was black like her and that audience participation had affected the jury's decision. The audience participation they were referring to were amens coming while the state presented its final argument, which precipitated motions by the defense for a mistrial and were cited in the arguments for a new trial. Testimony offered by J.K. Hutton, court clerk, and Judge McRory set forth that for years, there had been no racial discrimination in selecting veneer men. I think you could obviously argue that today. Emma's attorneys asked for 90 days in which to appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin, and the request was granted. The defense attorneys filed six bills of exceptions and statement of fact in the conviction and death sentence of Emma, who was being held in the county jail pending the hearing of the appeal. And on December the 13th, 1950, the Court of Criminal Appeals upheld the murder conviction and death sentence against her.
a year after her appeal had been exhausted in early April 1951, the domestic arrangements at Huntsville State Penitentiary were somewhat upset about the arrival of a woman who had been convicted of murder three times. Emma couldn't be quartered in death row, which was reserved for male prisoners, so new quarters were set up for her in an office used for the state auditor's representatives. Emma's execution was set for May the 4th, 1951. About a week later, Emma found out that she'd have a little longer to wait to be put to death. Described as a 170-pound Bear County woman, she received what amounted to a 33-day stay of execution from Governor Shivers. The governor gave Emma the regular 30-day reprieve, moving the execution date to June the 3rd, a Sunday. But because there's a custom against Sunday executions in Texas, Emma was slated for three additional days of life. If executed, she would have been the first Texas woman to die in the electric chair. That accounts for Emma's fancy cell. You see, at the time, the state prison had no regular facilities to house a condemned woman. Emma's room was a converted office. It was immense compared with those on death row. It had a private wash basin, sink, and toilet. The lighting was fluorescent, and the color scheme was a two-tone green. She wasn't complaining. About a week before her execution, the Texas Board of Pardon and Paroles refused clemency in Emma's case. A reprieve moved her execution date once again. This time it was set for July the 6th, 1951. A plea clemency was made on her behalf by three San Antonians, including Judge W.W. McRory, who imposed the death sentence. He says he was surprised when the jury fixed the penalty of death. Bear County Sheriff Owen Kilday and Reverend P.S. Wilkinson joined in the appeal, but the Pardon and Parole Board, without any comment, announced that it had denied the clemency plea. In early June 1951, the San Antonio Bar Association named a three-man committee to investigate Emma's case. At the same time, defense attorneys announced they would appeal the case to the United States Supreme Court. The attorneys based their plea for a new trial on grounds alleging jury misconduct. The defense contended, among other arguments, that Emma's constitutional rights were violated when her counsel was not present at the sentencing. That's mind-boggling. Other arguments the defense has advanced include the charge that some jurors had discussed Emma's previous convictions in two other murder cases, but the jurors had signed affidavits that this wasn't true. They couldn't be lying, could they? A statement from the Bar Association naming the three-man inquiry group said it would investigate conflicting reports of jury misconduct and political deals in the Emma Oliver case. I couldn't find what happened to that inquiry, though. Maybe because by the end of the month, on June the 29th, 1951, Texas Governor Shivers commuted the death sentence for Emma to life imprisonment just a week before she was set to die in the electric chair. The governor's action in commuting the sentence to life imprisonment was taken on recommendation of the State Board of Pardons and Paroles. The reason given was simply, on file are letters and petitions signed by numerous citizens of Bear County requesting a commutation of the death sentence in this case. Emma had fought for her life through three reprieves totaling 63 days, four appeals to the Court of Criminal Appeals, and numerous hearings before the parole board. 
Emma Oliver died in prison of cancer some 12 years later in February 1963. So, was Emma Straight E. Oliver the most notorious murderess in San Antonio? It's at least arguable. I don't think you'd find a woman who was quicker to pull her knife though. In my research, I did find a Tumblr page who talked with a woman who called Emma Oliver an amazing hero. The page was dedicated to telling stories about the east side of San Antonio. I don't know her story and I couldn't read it, but she doesn't look old enough to have been around when these cases were happening or at Emma's baptism, but hero isn't quite what I got from these stories. Believe me, I know the paper wouldn't ever try to spin any of Emma's cases in her favor, and when she got into a knife fight with someone, she could have been defending herself every single time. But as the saying goes, one murder is a chance, two murders is a coincidence, and three murders is a pattern. And that's Emma's story. I hope you take some time today to learn a little bit about history. It's fascinating. If you're a fan of the show, show your love with a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to help us grow. Let me know your thoughts on Instagram at True Crime San Antonio. Would love to hear from you. Truly. This has been True Crime San Antonio, and I am just another San Antonio native hoping to see us through. Take care.